Well, good morning. It's so good to be back with you guys. I know we've been looking forward to being here really for the last two years. We're going to share a little bit of that story with you, uh, how we actually came to come back to Grace Point. But uh, uh, Northwest Arkansas was one of our favorite trips a couple years ago, and so we're excited to be back here with you. I'm not going to lie, y'all. A lot has changed in the three years that we have been here. I, I don't know what season of life you're in, but our season of life... I'm not really sure we even know what season of life we're in right now. Uh, Three years ago, this was kind of a picture of our family. We were living in Nashville, Tennessee. We had been there for six years, getting ready to move back to Indianapolis to plant our second church plant, Hope City Church, which is now uh, two and a half years old. And this is what our family looked like. We... you're happy. All, we're young. It all made sense. Yeah. Uh, our oldest at the time was a senior in high school, getting ready to graduate. Uh, next to him, Elijah was a sophomore in high school. And then our little Isaiah was in fifth grade. And so th- that was our family three years ago. And then over the past uh, couple years, God began to take us on a journey well beyond just planning a church. I mean, we have a two-year-old church. Um, this is not me getting old. I just have bags because I'm tired all the time. Anybody <laughs> have a two-year-old? old? Yeah, so you, you kind of get it. It's like... You guys, I got a phone call at 6.30 this morning. We hired a new worship uh, pastor uh, two months ago, and so she is relatively new, and uh, we had no power going to our speakers. Could not figure it out. And uh, that was 7.30 our time in Indianapolis, and they had not rehearsed yet. <laughs> and so she's like, hey, I don't want to stress you out. I'm like, uh, you call me at 6.30 in the morning is <laughs> stressful, okay? Thankfully, they ran extension cords all over the place, and they're good to go now. But I just, you know, yeah. it's we're super fancy. In yeah, exactly. Uh, so, uh, six months into our church plant, we um, had a family that started to come, and the mom's name was Tina. Tina owns an adoption agency. She did not grow up in the church, um, would not call herself a Christian, and I'll never forget. We were kind of in this season. Uh, it was May, and our oldest was getting ready to get engaged. Our middle guy was getting ready to graduate from high school. And any empty nesters here? Yeah. So like there was an, the, an end was coming. Like we were going to have money again. Not really. They were going into college, but like, the, you know, we were seeing the end of the tunnel. And so we were just kind of in the season of like launching kids. And so in between uh, our son getting engaged and our other next son graduating from high school, we received an email from our friend Tina who had just been coming for, to our six month old baby church. And the title of the email said, would you pray? And I thought, girl, you don't even know Jesus. What am I praying about? You know, I was like, <laughs> okay, so I opened up the email and because she, op- she owns an adoption agency in the email, it said, we have a family of five kids that have come to my attention. She only works in usually infants and the two older children are looking for placement. Would you pray about adopting them? And I was like, like that was like a new con- I mean we we had gone through the foster care thing uh realizing that our travel schedule would not facilitate us being foster parents we had talked hypothetically about adopting someday okay but it was like wasn't really a reality but then <laughs> Micah got engaged Elijah graduated from high school We had a conversation with our children's birth mom on a Monday, and two weeks later, our kids came home to be our forever family. And so this is a picture of our family now. This is Jalen and Janiyah. I know! 
I will say that Jalen's dimple has superpowers. So, but what I want you to notice that has really changed in our family. Can you go back to our first, the first picture? That little boy who's sitting next to me, if you can go to the adoption picture, is the same boy standing next to me. This child. He's six foot eight. He's a freshman in high school. He's the only hope I have left of the NBA. Okay. So that's all I got. Yeah. But what's, what was so cool is um, we went through this process. We talked to the birth mom on June 2nd, June 21st. We got emergency custody of the kids, and they, they came home to live with us. And it was during that, that three-week process that I texted the adoption agency, and I said, hey, by the way, how much is this going to cost? Like, we agreed to do it not even knowing how much it was going to be. And she texted back this itemized list, $28,700. And I was like, oh my gosh. Like, like we're we going to have to sell one of the other kids to be able <laughs> exactly. to bring them home. <laughs> and so um, I, I started calling other pastors, friends of mine that uh, had supported our ministry, that we'd been to their church and speak. And Mike was one of the first people that I called. And I said, hey, we're trying to raise $28,000 in the next 10 days. Would Grace Point be willing to contribute to our adoption fund? He's like, we're in. Mm-hmm. We're in. And so part of us being here today is really just to say thank you for your investment in our family. You have helped change um, what we believe. You have helped change the eternity of these two kids. Yeah. And uh, they, had not been, they had never been to church before, and now they're pastor's kids. And Janiah helps out in the infant room every single week. And uh, Jalen went to the church with me yesterday to help uh, with a bunch of stuff. And, and uh, you guys would never, never know the difference that you're making in two, people, two little kids' lives and in our life. And so uh, we're grateful uh, for your investment in their life. Something we say at Hope City uh, is that we would love for you to serve one, attend one. And so my daughter has taken this to heart. And so she attends her class and then she serves. And so on Easter last week, I came by her class. She was helping in the toddler room. And she put her hands. She's so such a girl. I love it. She's like, mom, there are babies all over the place. I need to go back to work. And I was like, okay. So thank you. She runs the toddler room (laughs) is what we went to say. But you really, you really have um, continued our redemption story. And so some of you have heard our story before. And so maybe you have um, a family member here, a friend that needs to hear it in a fresh way, but we are just so grateful to be here because we know that in this room, everybody's in their own season of life. Regardless if you're eight or 80, you're in your own season. And what I know to be true about all of us today is that we're all dreamers. Maybe right now you're in a season of dreaming what middle school or high school will look like. Maybe for you, you're newly married and you got some major dreams going on. I love it. Maybe you're empty nesters and you're like, let's do this. I don't have to worry about where my children are anymore. Uh, I just have to remember that I have them, you know, and so uh, we're all in these different seasons and, and we're dreamers. Some of my most favorite people to hang out with are middle school and high schoolers because they have like the most audacious dreams. I love it. And Justin and I were no different. We met and fell in love uh, in 1993. We were big dreamers and unfortunately our dreams unfolded in the 90s. We got married in 1995. Anybody get married in the 90s? Yeah, we're like super shy about it. Think, um, it, it was very unfortunate to get married in the 90s because everything was like, think of um, Cinderella meets the bedazzled machine. It's like, those were our wedding dresses. In fact, my wedding veil, you know those desert lizards that get mad? They're like, that was my veil. I have a picture of it. See, like, 
I literally attacked people all day. But <laughs> beyond just our, our wedding day, Justin and I had this epic dream, epic vision to go on an epic honeymoon. And so we got through the ceremony, we got through the reception, and we got married in my hometown of uh, Joliet, Illinois, which is south of Chicago. And I grew up in a blue-collar, kind of low-income family. We didn't go on vacations. Justin grew up in a kind of a rural community, uh, probably more in a an area of poverty, not just poor, but more in poverty. And so we didn't grow up going on vacation. So like our honeymoon, we kind of joked that we got married just to go on vacation, but we were so excited that we were going to go to South Carolina to go to a beach. The problem is, is that we got married in Chicago and we were driving. And so we were excited that Justin's parents had given us their first brand new car they'd ever owned. They gave it to us to take on our honeymoon. And y'all, it was the sexiest 1995 teal Anybody remember the 95, the 90s teal? Pinstripes, sexiest 1995 Astro minivan you had ever seen. It was amazing. <laughs> and so the Lord knew I needed that big old van for my big old dress. And so we, we get in and we decide we probably shouldn't drive like 24 hours the first night married. So let's just drive a couple of hours, stay the night in a hotel, and then make the trip, the long trip the next day. Now, girls, regardless if you're married or not, We have this dream that when we get married, that our man is going to scoop us up and he's going to carry us over the threshold. And it's just going to be this most amazing romantic night. The problem is that it took us not three hours, but like eight hours to get to the hotel. By the time we got there, I was like, listen, you need to get to step in because I got to get out of this dress and go to sleep. It's been a long day. I don't know if you've been a part of it. I was like, oh, time out, my friend. I didn't get married to go to sleep. I got married for some action, so let's light a candle, let's throw some boys to men, let's get this party started. So as he tried to get the party started, I was in the bathroom, and I wasn't just crying, but I was sobbing. And the only thing I could get out of my mouth was, I need you to go to Walmart. Like, right now, I need you to go. I thought, why would I go to Walmart at 4 o'clock in the morning on my wedding night? Well, apparently, as we arrived at the hotel, something else arrived for Trish. So I walked down two aisles that day. The first aisle to say I do, and then the phone and the product aisle to say I'm not so sure. And I didn't know what I was doing, so I just bought one of everything, right? And the lady at the, the checkout is looking at me like, what are you doing? I'm like, just check me out. My wife is eagerly anticipating my arrival at the hotel. Yeah. I had fallen asleep. I'm not going to lie. No action. So, not yeah. a... We've been in therapy for 24 Zip. years, but it's okay. So <laughs> we wake up the next morning, and we just... we're get on the road to make a long trip. And so we've been on the road for a couple of hours and the sun is shining, but then we realized it started raining and it wasn't raining raindrops, it was raining hay. And then we realized that there was a hay truck in front of us and it was losing its bales of hay on the interstate, shutting down the interstate. And so we get out of our car and we are helping this farmer bale his hay off the interstate 12 hours into marriage. And we didn't notice that some of the hay went underneath the truck, caught the truck on fire and it exploded exploded and shut down the interstate. We are all for two people and we've been married for less than 24 hours. So by the time we get to the beach, we're a little shook, like, oh my gosh, but we're so excited. We made it. We drop our bags. We go and play in the blue, glorious ocean water. What we kind of forgot about was this thing called sunscreen. I know. And so after about three hours of being in the glorious ocean water, well, a little unknown fact about me, some of you know this, is that I'm Hispanic Hola. No? <laughs> okay, whatever. Uh, my maiden name is Lopez. And although I'm a fair-skinned Latina, I don't ever remember in the Midwest getting like a sunburn blister burn. But being in the South is different. 
And after being in the ocean water for about three hours, I was not just sunburned. I was blister burned to the point that I was like, um, buddy, you need to not touch me. Sorry. In fact, I need you to not talk to me because when you get close, your breath, it hurts my face. So if you can just kind of For the of next stay. three days, nothing touched her body but aloe vera. And you know you're in an epically bad place in your life when you call your dad, collect on your honeymoon. Because you, some of you need to Google what a collect call is, okay? <laughs> and you're talking to your dad about the action you're not having on your honeymoon. It's a very awkward conversation. And I said, Dad, it's been four days and nothing. I said, is that normal? He's like, well, in a few years it will be, but not right now. He's like, you know, we're not even Catholic, but I think you're going to know that. Just high five and walk away. Yeah, super close to my father-in-law. And so the very last day we had all this money. So I thought, you know what? I'm going to make it up to my husband. I'm going to ride a jet ski because running a jet ski for my young groom with a lot of pent-up energy is wise. And so this was the moment in our relationship where we realized who the rule follower is and who the rule breaker is. And it doesn't matter if you're single or married. You know who you are in your family. Who are my rule followers? Raise your hand. Okay. Like, can we raise our hand in church right now? Is this okay? Who are my rule breakers? Yes. Yeah. They usually talk because they can't just handle just, <laughs> well, I'm the rule follower. Justin's the rule breaker. And so we get on this jet ski and I would like to go over the rules of engagement on how to ride this jet ski. But before I can say anything, the whole, I whip my hair back and forth goes on because like, if you ever had a moment where like time kind of slows down, stands still enough for you to think to yourself, oh my gosh. I'm about to die. Like, this is this moment. (laughs) So we're on this jet ski, and my hair begins to part, and I begin to see what is about to unfold. And there's this party out coming into the cove, and this party out has people on top of it. And there's music playing, and this party out is creating huge waves. And my young groom is like, oh, yes. And I'm like, oh, no, no, no. And so before I could say anything, my husband goes full throttle towards the boat, We hit the waves so hard, so fast that I shoot straight up in the air to the point that I'm like, what's up to the people on the party app? (laughs) And then I fall right in a belly flat position. I know. I know. That's what the people on the boat said. And so when I came up out of the water, all my blisters had popped. And I was like, payback. I mean, I didn't say it out loud. I was just silently thinking it to myself. So if you're engaged here this morning. I'm sorry. Uh, but, But here's the deal. Like we all have dreams. And if you've ever dreamt something and it became into fruition, if you've ever gotten married and you had a vision for your marriage, I have to guess that the vision you had for your marriage, the vision of the dream you thought you had for your life doesn't always unfold. It doesn't always come into fruition the way you thought it would. So we got married the summer before my second senior year of college. I tried to squeeze four years into five. I uh, just wanted more student loans. That's, that was my plan. And so we were young. We're in love. We're in college. We're broke. And then four months into marriage, we realized that Trish doesn't have the flu like we thought she did, that she was pregnant with our oldest son, Micah. And so everything began to change. It was just a year of transition. I graduated uh, the following spring, and we dove headfirst into student ministry. And we just had this passion. We wanted to help as many students as possible come into a relationship with Jesus. So for the next seven years, we would uh, do student ministry at a few different churches. And then seven years into, in, into ministry, we felt like God had placed a vision on our heart to plant a church on the northeast side of Indianapolis, about 45 minutes from where we live right now, for people who didn't go to church. And so we'd never done that before. We sold everything that we owned, and our, our business plan was, by the time we ran out of this money, we had $5,000 uh, to our name. We thought, okay, we don't own anything anymore, but we have five grand. By the time we run out of this money, we should have a church going which sounds like a very faithful step. It's really just an unwise way to start a church, but that's what we did. And so we moved on June 1st, 2002, and on June 9th, we launched our first service, and 12 people showed up. 
And as a church planner, you're looking for any sign at all that God may be remotely in this. I'm thinking, oh my gosh, 12 people, 12 disciples. This is biblical, right? Three of these people are wearing sandals. Jesus himself wore sandals. It's anointed. It's going to work. And 12 people came the next week. And then the next week, you know, 16 people came. And then 20 people came. And then 20 people came, 40 people. And we had a couple of churches in our area that got behind us. And they gave us meeting space and resources and money. And they allowed me to speak. And they told their people to leave and go with us. And we launched public services in September of 2003, and over 250 people showed up at our first service. And more than the people that showed up, it was just this satisfaction and this unbelievable reality that God was allowing the vision that we had for this new church to play out, to come into fruition. And then from September of 2003 to Easter of 2005, our church would grow to over 700 people. But more than the numbers, like people were coming to know Christ and they were being baptized, and people who hadn't been to church in years were coming back to church. And they were finding a home and community and they were serving and finding their gifts and going on mission trips. It it was like we had a front row seat to the book of Acts. And even as things were going up and to the right with the church, now three years into the church and ten years into our marriage, there began to be some foundations, cracks in the foundation of my faith and cracks in the foundation of our marriage relationship that began to rise to the surface. And what we began to realize is that Over the first 10 years of our marriage, Trish and I had become really good ministry partners and really bad marriage partners. I think for all of us, regardless of what season of life you're in, um, when things get hard or when the vision begins to lose its luster, when we don't have that white hot passion, we begin to kind of look to the next milestone. Like if we could just achieve the next thing, maybe we'll, we'll get that feeling back. Maybe for you, middle school was just a train wreck. And so uh, your milestone was, I'm going to get into high school and I'm going to make that team. I'm going to get the lead in the musical. Like if I could just achieve that, then I can begin living the vision for my life. Maybe for you, um, you just think to yourself, you know, I'm into my 30s. I feel like I really want to be married. I'm not married yet. And I just feel like I've, I've hit the ceiling. If I could just find that person, then I can begin living my dream maybe for you it's you know you've been married for a couple of years and that white hot passion has begun to wane and so you think you know what it's this apartment if we could just get out of this apartment and we can buy a house then we can begin living the vision for our marriage and on and on and on and Jess and I were no different we were probably at the most successful point in our ministry with our church plant in fact I don't know what the statistics are today, but then 80% of church plants that started the way that we started our first church plant failed. So the fact that our church wasn't just surviving, we were thriving, was kind of this miracle. We were kind of like the Chip and Joanna Gaines of church planning, right? You know, it's like before social media, you just thought you were knocking it out of the park. The problem is, is that our ministry went up and to the right, our marriage began to fall apart. And from the outside looking in, we looked like we had it all together. We were married, 10 years, thriving ministry, three sweet little boys. And so we did what I think everybody else does. We just looked to the next milestone, the next achievement. So we thought, okay, it's our 10-year anniversary. Let's let's go on a cruise. And so we go on this cruise. And if I'm going to be really candid with you, I remember stepping onto that boat wondering if they had an extra room that I could stay by myself. Like we were not in a good place. But then God began to do a miracle in the milestone. Like having time away from the church, having time away from our kids, we began to reconnect. Like like I was feeling that white passion for my husband again. I really liked him. I enjoyed that we were staying in the same room. 
The problem is, is that the cruise ended, and when the cruise ended, we stepped right back into the same life with the same unhealthy patterns. And what I had no idea at that time is I didn't know that you could really be in love with somebody and then at the same time drift so quickly, so far apart. You know, what the cruise allowed us to do is it allowed us to change our behavior for a few days, but neither of us really had to change our heart. And so as we celebrated our 10-year anniversary, it felt like the pain of the marriage problems that we had began to dissipate. They began to go away. And so the urgency to really fix some of the issues that we dealt with really kind of went away with them. And because neither of us changed our heart, when we came back into our life, the same schedule, the same demands, the same pressure, the same kids, the, the same behavior patterns, the same problems began to emerge. We, we became this, aware of this alarming gap between the marriage that we had and the marriage that we thought we would have. Now, have you ever experienced that gap in your life? Maybe for some of you this morning, there's a gap between the mom that you are and the mom that you thought you would be. Because motherhood's a lot harder than you ever anticipated and, and mom guilt just completely overtakes you sometimes. Maybe for some of us, there's a gap between the husband that we are and the hum- husband we promised we would be. And we know that, that we have this greater vision for how we relate to our wife. We know we have this greater vision for how we can love our wife. And all we feel is this gap of who we are and who we really want to be. Maybe for some of you, it's the, the job that you have and the career that you thought you would have. And even thinking about getting up tomorrow morning and going back to work makes you anxious, makes you depressed. Maybe for some of us, there's a gap between um, who we are in our relationship with God, and who we pretend to be in our relationship with God. And we know that there's this spiritual disconnect. How, how do you reconcile that gap? How, how do you close that gap? See, Trish and I had this vision in our, in our marriage relationship that longer married would equate to a better marriage. The longer that we're married, the better our marriage is going to be. That's, that's what we think in our culture, right? Longer married just happens just automatically means a better marriage. That's why we look at movies like The Notebook. We think, oh my gosh, that's how it's going down for us. I'm going to die in a hospital bed with my husband. Spoiler alert, that's how the notebook ends, okay? And so if you haven't seen it, I just saved you three hours of your life. But that, that's our vision, right? That's the American dream. Longer married equals better marriage. But here, Trish and I were 10 years into marriage, and longer married didn't mean a better marriage. Longer married meant more irritable. Longer married meant less patience. Longer married meant louder arguments. Longer married meant the same argument over and over and over again. All this culminated on October 9th, 2005. I came home from church, and Trish was laying down for an afternoon nap, and I said, hey, we need to have a conversation. She said, okay, about what? And I said, about us. She's like, well, what about us? And I said, I'm done. She's like, you're done with what? I said, I'm done with you. Like, I'm out. I don't want to be married anymore. I don't want to be in ministry anymore. I'm not in love with you anymore. I'm having an affair. It's with your best friend. I want to be with her. And 14 years later, I, I wish it was a confession of remorse. And I wish it was a confession of repentance. It was just a confession of resignation. I, I don't know if you've given to a relationship and you give and you give and you give and what you think you deserve in return isn't reciprocated. What begins to happen is a sense of entitlement begins to live in your heart and that person can never repay you all that you think they owe. And that's exactly where I was in my relationship with Trish. She was never going to be the wife I felt like I deserved and so I was done. Well, obviously the intensity of our conversation went way up and Trisha left the house and a few minutes later, one of the elders at our church called, and he was just screaming at me on the phone. This has to be some kind of joke. Please tell me this is a sick joke. 
I had him bring all the elders over to my house. And these seven guys, three of whom had been with us since day one, we had just gone through a capital campaign. The average age of our church at that time was 28 years old. And our three-year-old church, average age of 28, had just committed a million dollars to help us buy this building that we were meeting at the time. And one of the guys on our elder team had given $250,000 to that. And I had cheated on all of them too. And they sat there for the next few hours, not trying to talk me out of the consequences of my choices, but the choice itself to leave my wife and my three kids. And I just couldn't hear it. Trisha didn't want me at the house, and so I went and checked into a hotel. And I arrived at the hotel, and a lady from our church called, and she said, if you have any hope at all of restoring your marriage relationship, you're going to go to this counseling appointment that we've made for you tomorrow. I'm like, counseling? I'm a pastor. I don't go to counseling. I do counseling. By the grace of God, I showed up at this counseling appointment the next morning, and I sat down kind of defiantly in this lady's office and began to share about as much of the story with her as I've shared with you this morning. She interrupted me about halfway through. She says, can I just ask you a question? I said, yeah. She said, what do you hope to get out of this counseling? I said, like, what is your objective? What's your goal here? And I said, you know what? If I could just be straight up honest with you, here's what I want you to help me figure out with this counseling session. I want you to help me figure out how God's going to bless my life no matter who I choose. That's what I want. And she said something in that moment that became the linchpin for the restoration that God was going to do in our marriage. She said, I can help broken people. I can't help hard-hearted people. I've been a Christian since I was 10 years old. I've been a pastor for 10 years. I had never really experienced brokenness before. Over the next few days, God would begin to break my heart and give me a desire for him again and a desire for my marriage relationship. That afternoon, Trisha packed up everything that I owned and moved me in with a family that had helped us start the church. We didn't talk for the next 10 days, and we were separated for two and a half months. We had a mediator that helped us get our kids back and forth. And I started going to counseling by myself, not knowing if I was ever going to have a second chance at our marriage. Ten years into counseling, Trisha called me on my cell phone, and I tell people all the time, if the prodigal son's dad would have had a cell phone, this would have been a call he would have made. And she said, I hear you've been going to counseling. I said, yes. She said, well, I'm willing to go with you. So a few days later, we started going to counseling together. We went to counseling four days a week for the next two months. We tell couples all the time, if you feel like your marriage is in trouble, our counselor wanted to see us four days a week. That's how jacked up we were, okay? Hang in there. It's going to be fine. But God began to use the intensity of those counseling sessions and the frequency of those counseling sessions and the honesty of those counseling sessions to peel back layers of brokenness and hurt and bitterness and half-truths that we hadn't taken the time or had the courage to talk about. And began a restoration process in our marriage that continues to this day. You know, with Justin's confession, I didn't just, I wasn't just losing my marriage. I didn't just lose my best friend who was on staff as our our children's director. I lost everything I had known. Like, with that confession, my life ended. We never went back to the church. It was like a severing for me and my boys. And there was nothing to fix it. I, I'd hit rock bottom and there, there was no milestone to turn to. There was no achievement that was going to heal this wound. And I just remember sitting on the couch and looking at my small young boys thinking, I, I, don't, I don't know what's next. What I realized is that rock bottom is still solid surface to stand and I needed to choose to stand in the only identity that God has ever called for me that I didn't have a relationship with Jesus because I was a wife. I didn't have a relationship with Jesus because I was a pastor's wife. I didn't have a relationship with Jesus because I was a mom. I had a relationship with Jesus. I was radically loved by Jesus because I am a daughter of the king. 
And so when I began to live in that, I began to stand in his truth. And there's this passage found in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 10. It says, for our earthly fathers disciplined us for a few years doing the best that they knew how. But God's discipline is always right and good for us because it means we will share in his holiness. It says, no discipline is enjoyable while it's happening. It's painful. Thank you. It goes on to say, but afterwards there will be a quiet harvest of right living for those who are trained in this way. So take a new grip, not an old one, not a tired one, not a better one. Take a new grip with your tired hands. Stand firm on your shaky legs. Mark out a straight path for your feet. Then those who follow you, though they are weak and lame, will not stumble and fall, but will become strong. And so what we want to close with is we didn't write a book about five happy hops and how to heal from an affair. This book is about 12 principles that we didn't live with just then, but continue to shape us to this day. But if we could talk about anything in our book, the two principles that continue to shape us and our family are the two that we want to leave you with today. You know, looking back on our journey, um, you know, there's a lot to cover. There's a lot of dots to connect between where we were, you know, 14 years ago and where we are today and what in the world happened. We, I got out of ministry. I was out of ministry for four years and worked in the marketplace and went through a restoration process to go back into ministry. And, and then we began to share our story at churches on Sunday morning, just kind of organically. We just got asked to share our testimony one Sunday and it just kind of turned in to us then starting a blog and starting a ministry. And we moved to Nashville to go back into ministry at a church and different churches began to ask us to speak. And then in 2013, we were given the opportunity to write Beyond Ordinary. And one of the things that afforded us was this retrospective look, kind of an autopsy of our old marriage. And one of the things we realized is long before the affair, we had an ordinary marriage. And an ordinary marriage is really a symptom of an ordinary relationship with God. We can't expect anything in our life to be extraordinary if our relationship with God is ordinary. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the reasons why we want to invite you back this afternoon is because we can unpack a lot more principles than we're able to cover today. Um, But one of the principles I want to share with you is that ordinary in your life is defeated, not just in a relationship, but in your life personally, is defeated when we tell the truth. Ordinary is defeated when we become men and women of truth. I mentioned that we... um, started going to counseling, went to counseling four days a week for two months. And so after 30 days, we had gone to, after 30 days, we'd gone to 16 counseling sessions. That's a lot of counseling. That's like a year's worth of counseling in a short amount of time, in a a month. And so it was intense and it was really, really good. And so we we started going to these counseling sessions and and trust is starting to be rebuilt. Trish is starting to believe some of the things I said. And and we're really starting to repair and restore our relationship. And so 30 days in, our counselor's like, hey, you guys are at a really critical stage in your restoration. He's like, Justin, you're actually starting to become trustworthy again. So your relationship is very fragile. He's like, I cannot encourage you enough. If you have left anything out, if you have not shared any ounce of truth, you have to share it now. He said, because unconfessed sin will always lead to repeated behavior. And so if you don't want to be back here in three months or three years or 13 years, you need to be truthful right now. I don't know if you've ever been called out in public and you don't want anybody to be know that you're called out, to know that you're being called out. And so I can still remember how hot my ears were during that conversation because I I knew that I was withholding truth. And I wasn't withholding truth because I wanted to hurt my marriage relationship. I was withholding truth because I thought if she knew that, it would be over. It would be a done deal. Like she would never take me back if she knew that. And I felt like this overwhelming sense that this was not about my marriage relationship anymore. This was about me finally becoming a person of truth in my relationship with God. So 
so I took a deep breath and I said to Trish, I said, hey, as far as the affair goes, I've told you everything, but I have a lot more I need to tell you. I said, I was sexually abused when I was a kid and I've never told anyone about it. I've never gotten help for it. And there, there's a wounded part of me that I can't fix. And I, I don't know what to do. I'm not, trying to, I'm not trying to excuse my behavior. I just want you to know that I have these, this brokenness in me and I want to get help. And I said, I was, <clears throat> I, for the last 10 years, I've struggled with pornography. I've been addicted to pornography. And I've deflected it and I've denied it and I've preached against it and I've counseled people through it. I've lied to you about it. And if you don't want anything to do with me, if you want a divorce, you can have everything. This isn't about us anymore. This is about me finally living in a right relationship with God. And in an act of grace and mercy, unlike anything I'd ever experienced, she said, now we can start over. Now we can begin again because I finally know the real you. And one of the things that I've learned about relationships, not just my own marriage, but relationships in general, is that God has created us to experience intimacy. If you look at Genesis chapter 2, it's all about Adam and Eve being fully known by God. And that's what the word intimacy means. The word intimacy literally means to be fully known. And that God has created you to experience intimacy with him. And if you're married, to experience intimacy with your spouse. That's why we got married. That's why, that's why we pursue marriage. Because we want somebody to know us. We want somebody to love us. Our greatest desire is to be fully known. Our greatest fear is that we won't be loved. And so what oftentimes happens in relationships is we compromise being known on the altar of being loved. We think to ourselves, if that person knew that about me, they wouldn't love me. And so we compromise truth in relationships, not because we want to be liars. We compromise truth in relationships because we want to be loved. But because intimacy means to be fully known, every time you and I compromise truth in a relationship, we place a cap, we place a lid on the amount of intimacy we're capable of experiencing in relationships. And so if you're here today and you maybe feel like your relationship with God has plateaued, your relationship with God is kind of drifting, your relationship with God used to be this white-hot passion that you have, and now it's just numb, my first question to you is, are you being truthful with God? Are you compartmentalizing your heart? Are you giving God part of your heart on Sunday and then keeping the rest of it to yourself through the week? Are you, do you think that you're pulling one over on God, trying to hide the broken, the ugly parts of your heart from Him? Can I tell you something? That God knows you fully, and He loves you anyway. Yeah. That is grace. That is unmerited favor. That's something that you can't earn, that you don't deserve, that he willingly knows everything about you and he loves you anyway. Maybe you're here today and you're drifting in a relationship. My, my first question is, are you being honest? Are you being truthful? Are you being transparent? Now, you don't have to be transparent with everyone. That would be creepy, okay? People would avoid you in the lobby of this church. But if you're a follower of Jesus, you need to be transparent with God. And if you're married, you need to be transparent with your spouse. See, Jesus said in the New Testament, he said, the truth will set you free. What he conveniently left out is, it will make you miserable first. But here's what I've learned in my own life. Short-term misery for long-term freedom is a trade worth making. And one of the equations I tried to work out over and over again in my life is 80% of the truth would give me 100% intimacy. 80% of the truth will never bring us 100% intimacy. We have to offer all of ourselves, and then watch God allow us to experience extraordinary intimacy with him and with those that we love the most. And this just wasn't a principle for Justin to go beyond ordinary in our marriage relationship and in my relationship with God. I had to begin to be a truth teller myself. And I realized that I had a forgiveness issue long before the affair, that ordinary is defeated 
when we choose to forgive. And I think all of us want to be forgiving people, right? And that's why that story of Jesus and his disciple Peter, Peter's like, well, how many times do I need to forgive? He's like, seven times. And Jesus is like, no, seven times 70. 70 times seven. I can't even get the equation right, let alone <laughs> forgiveness. And what Jesus was saying is, listen, forgiveness is a process. You're going to have to choose it over and over again. And so I began to tell the truth about how I was an unforgiving person. I wanted to learn how to forgive. And it meant that I started to deal with my grief. It meant that I I became angry. Like I, I, I had to change the way I was living my life because to do something over and over again and expect different results is what? It's insanity. And so I learned that the difference between uh, being a bitter person and a, and a forgiving person is brokenness. And brokenness is a surrender that you bring before God to say, God, I don't know how to fix this. And so I began to be broken in front of Jesus. I began asking him to help me understand how to forgive. And as I forgave Justin, listen, forgiveness is free, trust is earned. Those are two different topics. But when I began to forgive Justin, I realized that forgiveness leads to restoration of relationships. Forgiveness leads to freedom. And so I began dreaming new dreams for people in my life beyond just Justin, but my best friend. My dad who abandoned me at 18 and has not been a part of my life since. Like I'm like, I have new dreams that through the power of forgiveness, God can restore these relationships. And so a year into, after the affair happened, I sat down and I wrote my best friend a letter and I told her how much I loved her. I I told her that I forgave her, that the power, through the power of forgiveness, I was able to see her beyond this myopic view of this woman who destroyed my life, that Jesus gave me this panoramic view of this reality that we're all messed up sinners in need of grace. And to be honest with you, I've been walking with that truth for the past 14 years. I've written a book about forgiveness I've gone all around the country to churches and colleges. I've talked about forgiveness. And then three years ago, I was contacted by CNN to do an online interview about forgiveness. That I got to talk to a national audience. Now, before you get, like, excited, it was like 2 o'clock in the afternoon. So, like, just the nursing home saw it, right? But, <laughs> but God had given me these these places, this platform to talk about forgiveness. And the one person that did see that interview was my best friend. So after 10 years, she began to pen her own letter. And I I remember receiving it in the dream, like this dream was about to come into fruition. And I remember opening it. And it was the best apology that someone who is not broken could give. And I'm going to be honest with you, the past three years have been really difficult in this area of forgiveness. When my son got married last year and my family barely showed up for me, it sent me to a really dark place. And I began to believe that maybe life was not worth living. I began to feel those emotions all over again of like, Jesus, you don't get it. You have no idea. Like, have you ever been there? 
where you're in such a deep depression that you don't even know it. That you've been waving the white flag even though you're coming to church and you're going to youth group, you're serving in teams, going to small group. And last summer was a really defining moment for me where I just was like, oh, I'm done. I'm done. I don't want to do this anymore, God. It's just too hard. And what I love about Jesus is he found me as that little 30-something-year-old with my small kids, and he found me last summer where I felt like maybe life was too hard to live. And he says, I do. He says, I do. That we have a Jesus that knows what it's like to leave the perfect relationship with God the Father in heaven and come to this earth as a helpless baby, completely dependent on messed up humans. We have a Jesus who walked in community with his 12 disciples, where they got to experience heaven touching earth, where they saw the miracle after miracle after miracle, that at the Last Supper, Jesus not only invites them to the table, but he makes room for their doubt. He makes room for questions. But then when Jesus needed them the most, when he went to go pray in the garden, he just asked that they would stay awake and they fell asleep. As he was taken away and he was beaten and he was mocked and a crown of thorns are placed on his head. I imagine Jesus looking up just trying to find somebody and no one was to be found. Jesus says, I do. We have a Jesus who was hanging on the cross with nothing else to give. And the soldiers rip his clothes off and the Bible says they begin to barter over his clothes. And Jesus gets audacious. He cries out, my God. Forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. We have a Jesus that gave everything up so you could have everything in him. See, true forgiveness is when we offer it regardless of how the person responds. The forgiveness, it doesn't excuse someone's behavior, but it prevents that behavior from destroying your heart. The cross is the symbol that we are all messed up sinners in need of grace. And and here's the hard truth. Forgiveness doesn't always heal relationships, but it will always heal your heart. And maybe today, like me, you didn't know you were living with this dream That at some point I realized I was holding too tightly to the dream of restoration rather than holding on to the freedom of my Savior. And so when I was at my lowest moment, Jesus met me there and he meets you here today. And he radically loves you. And maybe you're here today and you're the adulteress. You're you're the dad who didn't show up. You're the wounder. And Jesus says, listen, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. I died for you. Will you receive it? Because freedom doesn't always, or forgiveness doesn't always heal relationships, but it will always free your heart. And so here's the question I leave you with. Will you choose? I would love to say that I have been perfect the past 14 years of knowing this information, but I haven't been. But when we choose to go first with the reality of our hardship, my prayer is that you will choose to go second. And the person you are seeing here alive today 
I know who I belong to. And I know that forgiveness resurrects that bitterness that tries to destroy that truth. So do you believe it? Let's pray. So Jesus, we just bring all the hard. We bring the transparency of the truth that we don't want anyone to know. That we've allowed our relationships to dictate our worth. We've allowed our mental health to determine our strength. We've allowed our status or our home or our job title to define our value. And so, Jesus, we just thank you for choosing us anyway. That while we were still on this journey, fumbling with forgiveness and bitterness and questioning our value, you still chose us. You are so worthy of our praise. So, Father, I pray that the people in this room don't receive it for a family member or the person next to them, but they receive it for themselves, that you are a restorative God, that you make all things new, that you knew our hands would be tired and you knew our legs would be shaky and you give us a new, group, new grip anyway. We love you, Jesus, and we thank you for being a God of second and third and fourth chances. We thank you for allowing us to live in the freedom of who you are. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.